for joining us. This is week number two, episode three of This Week in Labor, and I am your host, Timothy Billadu. Let's get right into our top story for this week, and it is from inequality.org, and it is written by Najin Awelai, and uh, the title of the article is Inside the Heated Battle Over DC's Subminimum Tipped Wage. Walking into a restaurant in Washington, DC these days means entering a battleground. The city's dining establishments are the current front in a war over the subminimum tipped wage. The lower base wage that employers paid tipped workers. On June 19th, D.C. voters must decide whether or not to join seven other states that require those employers to pay their tipped employees a full minimum wage. Initiative 77 and the heated debate around it has dragged a long-standing national discussion over the subminimum tipped wage into the light. On one side is one fair wage, which is in favor of the proposal to gradually raise tipped base pay until it's in line with the standard minimum wage by 2026. The opposition, which has raked in funding from the restaurant industry, has branded itself as, quote, save our tips. While the ballot initiative has no language that would change tipping practices, the Anti-77 campaign is pushing to maintain the status quo of DC's $3.33 sub-minimum tipped wage plus tips. For Kelsey, the scant hourly pay became an issue when she moved to the nation's capital. Kelsey, whose name, along with those of all the other tipped workers interviewed for this piece, has been changed to prevent retaliation on the job. Kelsey works for Clyde's Restaurant Group. She's been in the service industry for nearly two decades, but hadn't heard of a subminimum tipped wage until she began training at her current job. There's no discrepancy in the minimum wage for tipped workers in her home state of California. She says... I would know that there's a stable paycheck that I could count on every two weeks, that there would be some sort of consistency in my life that doesn't have to depend on whether it was a good night or a bad night, which regulars came in versus who didn't, she says. Anti-77 workers in D.C. worry that their tips will dry up if the initiative passes. But in Kelsey's experience, her tips were no different with the higher base pay. Quote, I know that it works in California, and people are shell-shocked when I tell them that. Research shows it works works elsewhere too. Initiative opponents say that increasing the minimum wage would force businesses to close their doors, leading to fewer jobs. But a recent policy brief from the Institute for Policy Studies and Restaurant Opportunities Center United, the worker group advocating for Initiative 77, found that to be untrue. The researchers studied a New York county that raised its tipped wage from $5 to $7.50. Workers' take-home pay went up, as did the number of restaurant jobs. Meanwhile, a neighboring Pennsylvania county, with the same economic indicators besides a tipped minimum wage for $2.83, saw a smaller pay increase as well as a decline in jobs. Kelsey has been surprised at how controversial Initiative 77 is among her colleagues, many of whom she says seem to be misinformed on the proposal and its consequences. She suspects this is due to a well-funded PR blitz from the Save Our Tips campaign that's taken over her workplace. This is ground zero. It's really frustrating. Workers at the restaurant wear pins to mark their opposition to the initiative, and servers are encouraged by management to engage with diners on the issue. The restaurant, like many in D.C., is covered in Save Our Tips signs. The heated atmosphere in their workplace makes it difficult to speak openly. Kelsey says the restaurant is far more able to share its point of view with employees, especially as managers make use of required daily meetings and email bulletins to spread their rhetoric. She doesn't have those resources, making it difficult to contrast her experience in California with the 
apocalyptic scenarios laid out by the anti-77 campaign. Besides, she's worried about retaliation at work. I really depend on my income from this job, she says. I have been very undercover with who I talk to and very fearful for my job. Her colleague Jane has also noticed heightened tension at the restaurant. Casual conversations turn into arguments. She recalls one particular exchange about the initiative with fellow servers, held in plain sight of the restaurant's diners. When things became strained, a manager stepped in not to calm nerves or to put an end to the discussion, but to try to convince Jane she was in the wrong about Initiative 77. Jane has also seen a difference in the way her supervisor treats her, and she's sure it's because she asks questions when managers mention the initiative. Jane hasn't told co-workers which way she's voting. She's only advocated for them to do their own research. It was simply that management was pushing the politics on us in our workplace and not giving anyone the appropriate knowledge. Both Kelsey and Jane say they've heard heaps of rumors and fear-mongering among their colleagues. There's been talk of the restaurant moving to a service charge model, Jane says, where the restaurant would add a fee to each bill to cover labor costs. But Kelsey is skeptical and thinks the proposition has been put out there to encourage staff to vote against the initiative by threatening them with the potential loss of tips. Both workers say the restaurant is constantly in need of waitstaff, and the city's in the midst of a restaurant staffing crisis. Unless all the other restaurants in the district adopted a similar measure, they don't see how the group could move forward with the threat. While the uh, anti-initiative 77 chorus is loud, Kelsey says she doesn't think their viewpoint is typical of her colleagues in the district. They don't really represent in my view, the tipped workers that I know who are informed about this topic. They're not our voices, and they don't speak for us. story comes from nonprofitquarterly.org and is written by Steve Dubb. The article is titled, Unions Gain Among Adjunct Faculty and Graduate Instructors on Campuses. To put it mildly, these are not good times for the U.S. labor movement. According to the Federal Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. unionization rate in 2017 was 10.7%, tied for 2016 as the record post-World War II low, with an even lower private sector rate of 6.5%. Among full-time workers, unionization is slightly higher, 11.8%, but only 5.7% of part-time workers are unionized. Yet adjunct faculty, the majority of whom work part-time, are bucking this trend, report Kristen Edwards and Kim Tolley in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Edwards and Tolley both teach at Notre Dame de Namur University, a Catholic college in the San Francisco Bay Area. To date, more than 54,000 faculty on 60 campuses have organized with the Serviced Employees International Union, or SEIU, through its Faculty Forward Initiative. Edwards and Tolley add that a 2016 study in the Journal of Collective Bargaining in the Academy reported that 20 new faculty unions were certified in the first three quarters of 2016, with nearly two-thirds representing both full and part-time adjunct faculty members, about a quarter representing part-timers, and about a tenth representing full-timers. This year has brought added union victories in 
March, Edwards and Tolly note, adjuncts voted to unionize at the University of South Florida, and in April, adjuncts in Nazareth College filed a petition to hold a union election. At the University of Pittsburgh, at Elmhurst College, and elsewhere, adjuncts are currently fighting for the right to organize a union on their campuses. Organizing is also taking place among graduate student instructors, teaching assistants, and researchers. Over roughly the past year and a half, graduate student workers from at least 14 different institutions have also voted to unionize, right, Edwards and Tolly? This spring, Harvard University agreed to negotiate with its graduate student union. Other campuses where graduate student employees have voted for unionization include Columbia, Yale, Boston College, the University of Chicago, and Loyola of Chicago. The impact of unionization on adjunct faculty has been significant. Edwards and Tolly note that adjunct faculty won salary increases at every institution we looked at. Edwards and Tolly add, a 2018 survey by the College and University Professional Association for Human Resources shows that U.S. faculty members this year are earning only 1.7% more than last year. But unionized faculty have negotiated steady increases that are significantly higher, and some of the steepest gains have come from unions formed within the last few years. The gains have indeed been impressive, albeit starting from a low base. Edwards and Tolly note that, at Washington University in St. Louis, adjuncts won a 26% increase over the subsequent four years. Boston University adjuncts won pay raises of between 29% and 68% over the three-year period covered by their contract. In California, Mills College adjuncts gained a wage scale that rewards seniority, with raises ranging from 1.75% to 60%. Benefits have also increased. Edwards and Tolly write that 89% of the contracts we examined include provisions allowing part-time faculty to receive health insurance. At Northeastern University, adjuncts who work 30 hours or more per week won healthcare insurance plans, and part-time faculty gained the right to participate in the university's basic retirement plan after two years of service. Lecturers in California's state university system who teach at least half-time for four consecutive quarters or three consecutive semesters receive healthcare benefits and participate in the university's voluntary retirement program. Nearly all, 97%, of the collective bargaining agreements examined also increased job security for contingent faculty. For example, some union locals have negotiated payments to faculty if classes are canceled. Edwards and Tolly note that at their own campus, adjunct faculty will now receive a modest $250 if a course is canceled and no alternative is provided. Also, nearly all contracts, 94%, have provisions that increase access to staff training. For example, at Montgomery College in Maryland, part-time faculty members negotiated a new contract that included a professional development benefit of $900 per instructor. Despite these gains, some goals such as parity in salary and benefits with tenure-line faculty, meaningful participation in shared governments, and halting the increasing over-reliance on gig labor remain mostly elusive so far. That said, adjunct family at one school, Dominican University of California, did win a contract that led to adjunct salaries that are 80% of the salary of a tenure-track assistant or associate professor. The stakes are high. Edwards and Tolly note that the purpose of higher education has been to develop skilled, thoughtful citizens capable of contributing in meaningful ways to society. This purpose will never be realized with a professorate composed predominantly of instructors who work without the protection of real academic freedom and have no role in shared governance, no job security, no benefits, low wages, and no real hope for ever finding a full-time position.
Our next story this week comes from Deadline.com and is written by Bruce Herring. The title of this article is Washington Post Staff Issues Open Letter to Jeff Bezos as Labor Dispute Heats Up. An ongoing labor negotiation between Washington Post publisher and Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and his employees has ramped up, as an open letter has been issued by more than 400 Washington Post staffers asking for better pay and benefits. The signees included editorial, advertising, production, drivers, and managers, as well as such prominent staff as White House reporter Ashley Parker and politics reporter Dave Weigel. The labor dispute between Bezos and the union that represents roughly 880 editorial and business side employees has been going on for the last year. Bezos bought the Washington Post in 2013. The open letter indicates the employees are grateful for what they have and for Bezos' patronage. However, it notes, in the past year alone, the Post has doubled the number of digital subscriptions and increased its online traffic by more than half. Its advertising team has met or exceeded all its targets. All we are asking for is fairness for each and every employee who contributed to this company's success. Fair wages, fair benefits for retirement, family leave and health care, and a fair amount of job security. The letter indicated that Bezos, the world's richest man by some calculations, offered $10 a week in pay increases that the letter said is unfair and even shocking from someone who believes democracy dies in darkness. The lack of an improved retirement plan and the Bezos push for more restrictive language on layoffs and the contract was called, quote, extreme and ominous in light of the Post's mixed record on fair treatment for women, racial minorities, and older employees. The Post is not just any business venture, but even if it were, this would not be the way to show that you value your employees. Please show the world that you not only can lead the way in creating wealth, but that you also know how to share it with the people who helped you create it. story this week comes from Timeline.com and is written by Megan Day and it is titled The First Black-Led Union Wouldn't Have Existed Without This Woman. Rosina Carruthers Tucker was born in 1881 in Washington, D.C. She married a preacher and might have lived a quiet life except the preacher died. And when she remarried, it was to a man whose job put the couple in just the right place and time to make history. Rosina's husband, Berthea Tucker, was a Pullman porter. In the 1920s, the Pullman Palace Car Company was the nation's largest single employer of black men. Pullman porters formed the first black-led union to be formally recognized by the American Federation of Labor and eventually led the charge on civil rights. And Rosina Tucker became one of the most influential female labor and civil rights organizers in American history. George Pullman started the Pullman Palace Car Company in 1862. He was a pioneer in vertical integration. He not only built the cars but operated them, and he brought the same approach to personnel matters, building and maintaining a company town in Illinois for his workers to live in and company stores for them to buy from. His business was a massive success, but its profit model relied largely on cutting labor costs, which led to widespread worker dissatisfaction. Sometimes he even neglected to pay his workers enough to 
afford rent on properties of which he himself was the landlord. In the 1890s, nearly starving after a round of wage cuts, Pullman workers staged a massive strike that rocked the city of Chicago. Protests were chaotic, and federal troops were called in to violently suppress the strikers. Other workers across the country went on strike in solidarity with the Pullman workers, and the labor stoppage and property damage cost Pullman a fortune. If Pullman didn't detest unions before the 1894 strike, he certainly did afterwards. Since there were no black unions at that point, Pullman favored hiring black porters for his passenger railway cars. Soon Pullman became the largest employer of black men in the U.S., and none of them were unionized. But by the 1920s, black labor organizer A. Philip Randolph was determined to change that. In 1921, he started laying the groundwork for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, also known as BSCP, which eventually became the first black-led union to sign a contract with a major U.S. corporation. The road was rough at first. Not only were many black men unaccustomed to being in unions, having sometimes been neglected or rejected by the majority white labor movement, but Pullman's company had a habit of surveilling, harassing, and retaliating against union activists. Sleeping car porters faced miserable working conditions and were routinely exploited by management, but even so, working for Pullman was one of the best employment opportunities for black men in those days, and workers were understandably reluctant to stick their necks out. The men would need to organize in secret, ideally through messengers who would pass unnoticed by management. Not only that, but they would need to be reassured constantly that being part of a union would be in their best interests. Randolph realized that in order to create a culture of solidarity and courage, as well as to perform basic tasks like communicating without being busted by the boss, the organizing effort required participation of not just men, but women. Randolph took an immediate liking to Rosina Parker when they met in Washington, D.C. in the early 1920s. Bethea had joined Randolph's fledgling union, but like many members, he was flying under the radar out of fear of retaliation. Randolph soon enlisted Rosina to help with organizing activities. Initially, she was brought in to deliver messages between union men. I was asked to act as a liaison between Mr. Randolph and the Washington Division she later explained. Material was sent to me and I personally disseminated it to the men. I kept them in touch with what was going on because it was dangerous for them to let it be known, even to each other, that they were members or had expressed any interest in the Brotherhood. The Pullman Company didn't suspect Rosino Tucker at first, even though she increasingly performed union business right under their noses. Pretending to make strictly social house calls to other Pullman wives, Rosina would bring union literature for dissemination and collect dues, all by way of her handbag. With Randolph's encouragement, she began to make a dedicated effort to convince the wives of Pullman porters of the importance of the union, so that they would encourage their husbands to join, or to remain despite the risks involved. She wrote later that she believed it was politically strategic and necessary that Pullman porters' wives be cognizant of their husbands' working conditions. The porter's home had to be a union home. Without a union home, the porter could not be a good union man. But she wasn't able to lay low forever. Eventually, news spread about a black woman woman labor organizer in Washington, D.C., and Pullman managers caught wind of the rumor that Rosina Tucker was their woman. The company fired Berthea on the spot. In a rage, Rosina marched down to the Union Station and confronted the company's regional director. He asked her, why are you taking it up? And she answered, I am here because you brought me into it. If you don't take care of this matter, I will be back. 
Prithea was reinstated at the company the very next day. After that, she conducted her business out in the open. It was written in the union paper Black Worker that she went up and down the streets of Washington and into the offices of the Washington Pullman Advisor and spoke her piece about the right of porters to join the Brotherhood. In 1925, six weeks after the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters became official, Tucker founded and became president of the Ladies Auxiliary, also known as the Women's Economic Councils. This was a formal way to do what she'd been doing already, organizing for the Porters Union, including organizing the Porters' wives and families. Instead of secret house visits, the Women's Economic Councils held meetings out in the open and had a full calendar of social and educational programs for everyone in the extended world of the Union. But under Tucker, the Women's Economic Councils offered much more than moral support to the BSCP. Other African-American trade union women, such as Helena Wilson, believed that the ideal role of the ladies' auxiliary was to support the union so that the men could bring home as much bacon as possible. Williams's image of the union housewife was someone who enjoyed, quote, the domestic security of her husband's union wages and used her power as a consumer to buy union-made goods. Tucker disagreed. She felt that it was important for the women's economic councils to actively participate in organizing women workers too. And she pushed the group to do exactly that. The women's economic councils formed connections with labor unions black and white, women's and men's throughout DC. When the Washington Women's Trade Union League, WTUL for short, and the National Negro Alliance called for a protest against racial discrimination in the grocer's trade, Tucker helped organize the boycott. From there, the Women's Economic Councils began to support the WTUL in organizing unions for laundry workers, domestic workers, and hotel and restaurant workers, all largely African-American women's occupations. And whenever there was an anti-racist or civil rights fight to be picked, the Women's Economic Councils were on the front lines. After 11 years of Tucker's leadership, the Women's Economic Councils gave for a token of appreciation for her service, a beautiful briefcase. The symbolism of the gift was intentional. Tucker had always insisted that the women's economic councils were not a charity or a hobby, they were a tool of collective political struggle. The briefcase was an acknowledgement of Tucker's seriousness and dedication. She meant business. Tucker remained a close friend and accomplice to A. Philip Randolph for decades. When Randolph organized the first civil rights march on Washington in 1941, he relied on Tucker as a key organizer. The march was called off, but only after the threat of hundreds of thousands of black people descending on DC had succeeded in pressuring President Franklin D. Roosevelt to ban racial discrimination in the defense industry, which eventually led to the desegregation of the military. And when Randolph organized the second march on Washington in 1963, he called on Tucker that time as well. She was 82 years old. She died in 1987 at 105 years old after a century of struggle. She had been a mourner at the funeral of Frederick Douglass and was present when Martin Luther King Jr delivered his I Have a Dream speech. After her death, an unfinished autobiography was found in which she wrote, Today is my day, as it is your day. Although I live far removed from the time when I was born, I do not feel that my heart should dwell in the past. It is in the future. While I live, let not my life be in vain. And when I depart, may there be remembrance of me and my life as I have lived it. things up for this week's edition of This Week in Labor. Feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We will see you next week in solidarity. This has been Tim Billadoo.
join that one big union. You've got to join it by yourself. Everybody here will join it with you. You've got to join the one big union by yourself. If that road gets rough and rocky, if the hills get steep and high, we will sing as we go marching, and we'll win one big union by and by. Brothers got to join that one big union. Brothers got to join it by himself. Everybody here will join it with him. Brothers got to join the one big union by himself. Sisters gotta join that one big union. Sisters gotta join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with her. Sisters gotta join the one big union by herself. Everybody's gotta join that one big union. Everybody's gotta join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with them. Yes. Everybody join one big union by themselves. I'm gonna join that one big union. I'm gonna join it by myself. Don't want nobody to join it for me. I'm gonna join one big union by myself. I'm gonna join that one big union. Yes, I am. I'm gonna join it by myself. Don't want nobody to join it for me. I'm gonna join the one big union by myself.